Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. You have found the most informative hour of sports radio you'll listen to all week long and the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune in this week. In segment three, Alana Kloss. She is the CEO and the commissioner of World Team Tennis. With Wimbledon upon us and equal pay for men and women for the first time, we thought we'd take some time to catch up with one of the most powerful women in all of tennis. We'll do that in segment three. We have got a jam Packed segment for SportsSense. Portland Trailblazers GM Kevin Pritchard, he will join us. I was able to catch up with him on draft night and discuss another incredibly busy night for the Trailblazers, including the drafting of Greg Oden with the number one pick. We're also going to hear from NBA superstar Kevin Durant, now with the Seattle Supersonics, and his agent Aaron Goodwin about Durant's future marketability and Durant's desire to have a moderately priced shoe. We'll also recap a busy 2007 NBA draft. A couple of other notes, visit our new and improved website at sportsbusinessradio.com. Listen to SBR On Demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. I'm joined in studio by Nathan Roach. Nathan, I can't remember an NBA draft where there was a more highly anticipated number one pick. Is it Odin? Is it Durant? We've been talking about this for months, and we finally found out who it was, and it was Greg Odin on Thursday night. Well, as a Blazers fan, I'm not that surprised that it was Greg Odin, but if you weren't if you weren't excited about the draft before tonight, you really have to be now. Not only did the Blazers get Greg Odin, but now they've got Steve Francis and a number of other players for Portlanders to get excited about. Yeah, and we'll talk about some of those moves with Kevin Pritchard in segment four. But from the NBA standpoint, you bring in two high-character guys, two very good players who are probably going to play in your league and be cornerstones for their teams for the next 10 to 15 years in Greg Oden and Kevin Durant. Two franchises that, quite frankly, uh, needed some help in Portland and Seattle now get healthy in a hurry with these two guys. I know there have been some people that said, well, it's unfortunate these two guys are in the Pacific Northwest. Listen, you're only as strong as your weakest teams. Two weak teams just got better in a hurry. Oh, a lot better. And now you look at the marketability of these two players, and I know we'll talk about this later in the show, but Odin and Durant, and Durant is going to be the most marketable player. What shoes deal is he going to sign? We don't yet know. Well, we've got lots of headlines coming up. I am very happy with the Chicago Bears this week and what they did with Tank Johnson. We'll tell you about that coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training. Sports business curriculum taught by industry experts and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. 
But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one. We talked, Nathan, on last week's show about Pac-Man Jones, about a possible lifetime ban from the league, about Roger Goodell and his strict policies with behavior from NFL players. Well, we saw a team for the first time take a hardline stance with a player this week, and I applaud it. The Chicago Bears did the right thing. They waived trouble defensive tackle Tank Johnson. Johnson had served some jail time. He was pulled over in Arizona, and they said, you know what, we have a zero-tolerance policy with you because you've been in trouble in the past. They waved him goodbye, and I applaud them. Absolutely, and I'm a Bears fan, so it hurts to lose a great player like Tank Johnson. But you know what? Finally, a team says, you know what? We want a player with character and a player who's going to be a good on-and-off-the-field person. And Tank Johnson was not there, and they let him go. We see too many times with Terrell Owens and Randy Moss, and they'll keep the player. This time, the Bears did the right thing. Well, the Bengals have had something like 14 arrests in the last year. They have yet to take a hard-line stance with their players. Uh, Even their quarterback, Carson Palmer, came out this week and said, you know what, I'm embarrassed by the behavior of my teammates. This is the first time that a team has said, we're going to take a hard-line stance. Before that, it was only Commissioner Goodell who was suspending people. Now maybe we'll see more teams say, okay, the Bears took a hard-line stance. You know, I don't understand, again, why the Titans don't just say, you know what, Pac-Man Jones, I don't care when your suspension's done, but whenever it's done, you're not welcome here, and, and we're waving you goodbye today. Well, now it's up to Goodell to actually take a stance because we know that Tank Johnson is probably going to try to go to another team, obviously. I'd like to see Goodell say, hold on, until you straighten it out, you can no longer play in this league. So our next headline, the NBA this week announced an eight-year media rights deal. It's a renewal with Turner and with ESPN ABC. And this is a complicated deal, but Nathan, the bottom line is this. There's a 20% increase in rights fees. It goes from $766 million to $930 million, and it's not just TV. Now we're in an age of new media. So you're getting video for mobile phones, for online entities, Pretty big deal for the NBA. Oh, it's a huge deal for the NBA, and it's a huge deal for ABC, and especially with the timing it is right now. you got two new superstars in Durant and Odin coming into the league, hopefully driving ratings up, more players like like LeBron James coming in, and hopefully people start to tune in. Obviously, we didn't see it in the playoffs this year. We'll see. So the new agreement begins in 2008-2009, and it runs through 2015-2016, and it gives ESPN and ABC and TNT the same number of telecasts as the current deal. Our next headline. Well, Rick Hendrick, who is now Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s boss, said when Dale Earnhardt Jr. came to the team, hey, listen, one of the things I want to do for you is I want to buy you the number eight. Let me go see if I can make a deal with DEI, your old team, and let's see if we can get you the number eight. Well, guess what? NASCAR comes out this week and says that is not a legal maneuver, so the number eight will not accompany Dale Earnhardt Jr. You know, Nathan, some rules are just ridiculous, and I think this is one of them. Maybe NASCAR is saying we don't want the new number to come with him because they want all the new marketing bonanzas and the, everything that's going to sell with the new number, but... 
people identify with number eight. Well, yeah, and I think this is a bad move on NASCAR's part. I mean, like you said, NASCAR's done such a great job of marketing themselves for the last couple years. You got one of your key racers here is number eight. Everybody owns the memorabilia. And, you know, if you look at the NFL and the NBA, players will buy jersey numbers to get their number, and Dale Earnhardt should be able to do the same in NASCAR, even though he's changing teams. So basically the rule is this. NASCAR owns the numbers and licenses them to teams on an annual basis. A team may allow another team to use the number for that year pending NASCAR's approval, but in this case it doesn't sound like uh, number eight is going to follow Dale Earnhardt Jr. We'll stay on top of this story, but again, this could have a big impact because it could affect future merchandise sales for Dale Earnhardt Jr. Our next headline, Tiger Woods is skipping the Buick Open this weekend. Now, Tiger Woods has played in the Buick Open the last six years. He's the defending champion, and Buick is a sponsor. Now, a lot of people are saying Tiger is skipping this event because he and his wife just had a daughter. By the way, if you want to see pictures of Tiger and his wife and his new daughter, go to the blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. But also... Tiger has a reduced role now with General Motors. They announced that last week. I wonder, because he's got a bit of a reduced role, did that rub him the wrong way? And is he not playing in this tournament because of that? Well, it seems it's kind of funny to me because just a couple months ago we were talking about what a great new ad Tiger had with Buick when he tackles the guy that steals his golf bag. It, it seemed to me like they were really starting to hype up Tiger Woods, and now they've stepped back. It it looks like he's going to be doing some stuff with OnStar. So I don't know that I agree with the or, or, or you know necessarily think that he's not going to be playing this tournament because of that. I think Tiger really is a family guy. He said that all along, but it does seem a little suspicious. Well, I understand what GM's saying. They say, you know, we want Buick to be identified for its cars and not for Tiger Woods. They want to stick him on OnStar because that's a new technology. Tiger's a young guy. Maybe more people relate to Tiger and OnStar than they do to Tiger and Buick. But you're paying Tiger Woods a lot of money. So if you're not going to utilize him as much, to me, that doesn't make a little sense. Uh, Let me throw in one more Tiger Woods note. He's going to be playing in uh, D.C. July 5th. In the AT&T National, it's a tournament he is now hosting. Phil Mickelson is also going to return during that tournament. VJ Singh is playing in that tournament. So Tiger has had good success in getting some of the top names in golf to come to D.C., play in this uh, inaugural event, and play in his tournament. Oh, I think it's going to be a huge deal. you got the marquee players playing there. But going back to Buick real briefly, you know, Buick is normally identified with an older audience, so it seems kind of strange to me that they wouldn't continue to use Tiger because he is a younger guy to promote that to younger audiences. I mean, I associate Buick Buick and Cadillac with, with an older audience. Well, and when Mark Steinberg, Tiger's agent, was on our show last year, he said that Tiger did an incredible job by bringing down the average age of the Buick driver, and that was one of the goals Buick had, is they said, we want to target younger drivers. Let's go on to our next headline. Adidas this week launched a really cool site. You can find this on our blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. It's called Football Meets Football, and it stars David Beckham, who is a football star, and Reggie Bush, NFL star for the New Orleans Saints. Two of Adidas's iconic endorsers, and it brings them together. I thought it was a very clever thing, and it's only online. So you're not going to see these ads on TV. You'll only find them online. No, this was one of the coolest things I've seen yet, and it is only online, and it's long. It's like two and a half minutes, so you really get an idea for their not only their abilities as athletes, but their personalities. We saw a similar thing that Nike did in the What If campaign when Agassi's playing baseball. It's really cool to see professional athletes like Reggie Bush and David Beckham step outside of their comfort zone 
doing football, doing baseball, doing soccer, you know, they're still really good at whatever they do. They're athletes. Well, and Beckham is going to be playing in the MLS for the LA Galaxy in the very near future. Uh, Adidas is going to have three more efforts that include Beckham in their marketing and advertising, so watch for those. Our last headline of the week, this one is is just kind of a, a sad one, I guess. Uh, former NFL players who were disabled went in front of Congress this week and basically, they feel like they're not getting the money they need to get as retired disabled players from the NFL. The NFL is a $7 billion a year entity. Only $20 million of that money is allotted to disabled players, which amounts to about $63,000 for the 317 players who qualified for disability from the NFL. Guys like Mike Webster played center for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was disabled. He couldn't collect disability. He's died. There are other guys that are saying, you know, I'm down and out. So Mike Ditka, some other real high-profile guys that are retired players are fighting for some of their disabled players saying, listen, the NFL makes a ton of money. Why can't we take care of some of our brethren? Well, I thought it was kind of funny that the NFL actually came out and said that they have one of the best health care policies in all of business. I thought that was a pretty bold statement given all the facts. I love to see Ditka out there with all his tenacity going after him. Well, and there is some animosity, let me tell you, between these players and Mike Ditka and Gene Upshaw, who is the head of the Players Union. Gene Upshaw didn't even bother to show up for these congressional hearings. I think that is a sham. At least show up. At least hear these people out. Maybe you're not going to change things, but at least hear them out. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Alana Kloss. She is the CEO and commissioner of World Team Tennis. We'll talk about equal pay at Wimbledon for the first time and a few other things with tennis now that Wimbledon is going on. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is World Team Tennis CEO and Commissioner Alana Kloss. Alana, thanks for joining us here on Sports Business Radio. Great to be on with you, Brian. Thanks. So it was great to meet you uh, at the Warsaw Center's 2007 Sports Business uh, Women's Symposium. You were honored as the Sports Business Woman of the Year. Talk about that for a minute. That's quite an honor. Uh, it really is. I mean, especially being in the company of Leanne Daly, uh, formerly with uh, ESPN, and Val Ackerman, formerly of the WNBA. And, uh, you know, especially special for me because of my relationship with Jim Warsaw. 
Talk about, if you would, for a minute, uh, the World Team Tennis uh, Association. Uh, for people not familiar with this, the structure, the league, the format, how long it's been around, uh, if you would. Yeah, um, World Team Tennis, it's, it's a co-ed uh, tennis league, men and women, two men, two women on each team. It's been in existence since 1974, so um, around quite a while. Currently 11 cities that play in, in the month of July. And, um, you know, for me, I... It's something I really believe in because it is gender uh, equity and men and women, you know, sharing, uh, you know, sharing uh, an, an event with um, with equal contribution to the team effort. And I love the fact that, um, you know, whether you're a little boy or a little girl, when you come to World Team Tennis, you can see yourself. Um, so, you know, something that I'm very passionate about, I played World Team Tennis in 1974 in the very first year when I came to America as a professional tennis player. And it really, um, you know, it's uh, it's a thrill for me to now be leading the organization as CEO. You know, it's funny. I think I told you when we uh, spoke today, I've been a fan of team tennis for a long time. Uh, when I was growing up in Phoenix, I remember watching uh, Chrissy Everett play for the Phoenix Rackets. So you guys, like you said, have been around for a long time. That's right. You must have been about five years old. I was, yeah, I was, uh, I'm 38 right now, so I was uh, pretty young, but I do remember. It's actually one of my first sports memories, and, you know, like what you just said, uh, I think it was great that there were men and women out there competing uh, at the same time, and uh, it was a lot of fun to watch, and actually it was one of the things that got me into playing tennis. Yeah, no, it is, it's a great product, and obviously tennis is one of the few sports where where men and women, you know, can certainly compete at the same event, and, uh, now, obviously, it's a, a sport that has such high profile, and you know, I think it's one of the few sports where the men and women are now paid equally at the major events. So, um, pretty be exciting to be a part of that. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, Wimbledon became the last of the Grand Slams to finally uh, dole out equal pay, or they're going to do so this summer. Uh, I think that's really uh, a great move by them, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. And you know, the truth of the matter is, they were so close. You know, each. I mean, they, they've been at about ninety to ninety-five percent the last two or three years. So, I think for the most part, it was just you know cultural, and them just thinking that it's just not the right thing to do. And to be honest, it absolutely is the right thing to do. And you know, what a great message for us to be sending to our sons and daughters that um, you know, in entertainment. Um, you know, men are worth in the same as women, and it doesn't matter how long you're out there. You know, entertainers aren't paid by the minute they sing. So um, I just think it's a great message, and Wimbledon really being the premier event in the world for tennis, um, certainly um, U.S. Open is right up there, and you have to hats off to the U.S. Open and the United States Tennis Association because they were the first to give uh, equal pay to the women uh, in 1973. My guest is Alana Kloss. She is the CEO and Commissioner of World Team Tennis. She's also the recipient of the Warsaw Center's 2007 Sports Business Woman of the Year Award. Alana, do women have a big enough voice in the sports world today, or is there still a considerable amount of work that needs to be done? I mean, Brian, there's definitely um, a lot of work to be done. It's certainly um, getting a lot better, and I think um, you know, women obviously have... Uh, much more control and, and, and much more spending power. I think they make about 80% of the decisions in, in where household money is spent. And you really do see 
um, you know, all the major league sporting events, catering to women, having women's apparel. And so I think people are starting to get a sense of how important, you know, marketing to both genders is. Um, but we still need to get a lot more women in uh, positions of power where they are making the decisions. And, um, you know, we, we have we have a way to go, but it, it's definitely started. And there's some, you know, women running um, major league, baseball team front offices and and you know I think it's starting to happen it's slow but um it's also important that women support other women and and give other women an opportunity so um you know we're getting there and when you love uh, history it's much too slow when you look back on history it seems you know very quick Sure. Speaking of powerful women, when I think of women's sports, there's one name that comes to my mind and that's Billie Jean King. You know her well, you work for her. Talk about Billie Jean King. I heard you talk today about how she's been a mentor for you. I just think she's incredible, and, and what a legacy she's already created. Yeah, there's no question. I think, you know, Billie Jean stands for equality. And I think, you know, a lot of times people feel that she's a real feminist, but, but she really isn't. She, you know, I think in most cases, uh, women and girls are underserved. And I think, you know, everybody wants their sons and daughters to be treated the same. And so I think, you know, Billy has always been a person who maybe has fought for, um, you know, the underdog or for someone whose voice has not been heard. Um, but, you know, I think we all have people in our lives who, uh, at a particular time, have said something or done something that has resonated and, uh, and made us feel better. And I think that the one great thing that Billie Jean King does is that, she lifts people up, and um, you know she always encourages them to to be the best that they can be, and it doesn't mean being number one in the world. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned today that she watched you pick up tennis balls, and she hit some tennis balls with you, and and after hitting with her, she inspired you to we to be want to be a tennis player. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. Absolutely, I was 11 years old uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, you know, and she stopped by the court. I was hitting with my dad, and she asked him if she could hit a few balls with me. And you know, that day really changed my life. It really was uh, a defining moment where I decided that I wanted to become a professional tennis player. And I think, you know, all of us can can be that person for other young kids. And I think it's hugely important that. You know, we take the time to encourage others and, and, you know, really support them in pursuing their dreams. My guest is Alana Claw. She's the World Team Tennis Commissioner and CEO. We've got just a few minutes left. Let's talk about the state of tennis today. Your thoughts. Uh, you know, it used to be back in the day, obviously, we had Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, obviously Billie Jean King, some really big names. We've got some big names today, but tennis just doesn't seem to have that oomph that it did maybe 10, 20 years ago. What does tennis need to do to get more TV ratings and uh, more people paying attention to it? Well, I think you need American champions. You need Americans doing well here in America for you know people to be interested in watching it. And I think you know when Venus and Serena were, were doing well four or five years ago, I think you know people were excited about it. Um, you know when Agassi was doing well, Sampras. Um, you know, certainly Roddick and Blake are great, but they aren't, um, you know, number one or number two in the world. And right. Americans like winners. So, um, also, you know, I think a lot of tennis events have left America and have gone to Asia and Europe because the money is, 
is just so big. You know, you're competing with governments, <laughs> which which is tough to compete with as it relates to financial backing. So that hasn't helped either. Um, but I think, you know, we need some more American stars. I do believe that um, the the format needs to be, it's got to be a better product on TV. Um, you know, that's why I believe World Team Tennis is so great because it's singles, doubles, and mixed doubles. And I think Americans also like to follow team events. Um, but unfortunately, it's about stars. And in the tournament uh, format, 50% of the field loses the first round. 75% lose the second round, so it's very difficult to build a star. You know, you have to, to keep winning, 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 whereas in basketball or baseball, everybody plays every night, so in a way, you can build stars. So the format makes it challenging, but at the same time, you know, people love that one-on-one, but I, I think it is about American champions and also about champions that... Um, you know, have personality and engage the crowd because people like to be engaged. You know, when you watch Jimmy Connors, you watched Ely Nastasi, you watched, you know, Billie Jean King, you were, you know, on the edge of your seat. You felt like you were playing the match with them. And, um, you know, it, it, personalities are very important. Alana, last question. What advice do you have for women who are trying to make their way in the sports industry on or off the court? Uh, you know, I think never give up. Um, try to uh, develop relationships at a young age with, with people who can help open doors for you. And, uh, you know, as Billie Jean always taught me, when somebody tells you no, it just means that they don't have enough information. So, <laughs> That's you know, a great never thing. give up and, and believe in yourself because, uh, you know, there women absolutely add a lot to, to everything. And, uh, Anything is a much better product when you have a diverse representation of thoughts and, and, and power. Well, Alana, congratulations again on your uh, award as the Warsaw Center's 2007 Sports Business Woman of the Year. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me, and best of luck on uh, everything in the future. Great. Thanks so much, Brian. And when I see Chris Everett, I'll tell her that you were asking about it. Uh, you know what? She was one of my idols growing up. So uh, that would be, I, I would love to talk to her one day. That would be a thrill for me. All righty. Take care. You too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. 
one-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Kevin Pritchard. He's the general manager of the Portland Trailblazers. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Congratulations on another incredible NBA draft. You know, I listened to your interviews over the last few weeks, and when you described Greg Oden as a caregiver, it was kind of a tip to me because I remember you used that word last year with Brandon Roy. Talk for a minute, if you would, about Greg Oden and the traits he possesses as a caregiver that made him your number one pick. Well, I guess if there was ever a clue, that was it. Uh, you know, I don't want to make this like the Da Vinci Code. Right. But we we definitely had an idea. We felt good about him. And uh, I tend to gravitate to guys who are unselfish, put the team first, and uh, are really tough kids. And, uh, you know, Craig fit that bill. We felt very good about it. And uh, I'm really excited about having uh, Craig Oden. And, and the rest of the draft played out very well for us as well. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. You told me a few weeks ago during our interview that when you met with Brandon Roy last year, during your personal conversations with him, he said some things to you that kind of tipped you off, and you said, that's my guy. When you met with Greg Oden, did you get any kind of a tip-off from your conversation with him where you said, that's the guy I want? You know, I think it was a culmination of a lot of things. Number one is that uh, he's a very caring kid. He is very respectful. He's exactly what we want in terms of our culture. So as, as Brandon kind of pinned down one thing that got me going on him, uh, got me interested in drafting him, it was a culmination of a bunch of things with Greg. I can't tell you it was one thing with him. You know, there was a tremendous amount of suspense around this number one pick. I can't remember a draft, frankly, where there's been more suspense about the number one pick can you talk for a minute about the process? You had these guys in to work out. You met them. You had dinner with them. You saw them on the court. Talk about the process of deciding who was the number one pick and, and your meeting with your staff and all of that kind of stuff. Well, we had a big meeting yesterday. We brought in the coaches. We brought in the, uh, the management team, the scouts, and everybody was allowed to give exactly what they wanted in terms of uh, speaking their mind, and because of that, we were able to uh, get everything on the board. Everybody put out the pros and cons, and at the end of the day, I think that's kind of how you get to a, a higher level of uh, a truth or decision making. And uh, we had that; it was a great meeting. And at the end of the day, we all felt very good about uh, taking Odin, and uh, we're we're excited about him being in a Portland Trailblazer uniform. Kevin, how many offers did you have for the number one pick? You don't have to tell me an exact number, but was it more or less than than 15 offers? It was more than 15. Wow. And did any of them make you stop and take pause or not even for a second? Not for Grego, no. Wow. You know, let's talk about this amazing transformation. Kevin, you know, I got to tell you, you've done a remarkable job last year's draft and then tonight's draft. This talent that you've stockpiled in these two drafts is is nothing short of of amazing talk about how you were able to stockpile this amount of talent in in really a short amount of time well i think the the big thing is we've got an owner that's willing to go out there and be aggressive in the draft he's willing to identify players and say kevin go get them and so we have the resources but it all starts with what we're about and we're about culture nate and i feel very strongly about how we build this organization 
and we're going to do it day in, day out. This is not something you just wake up and say we're going to have a great culture. It works like uh, like you do in anything, in any relationship. You work out it every single day. So we're very excited. We're extremely uh, satisfied with the draft and uh, just looking forward to getting these guys on the court. You know, Kevin, it's interesting that you talk about culture. One thing that I noticed tonight that didn't slip past me, I think a lot of other people noticed it as well, Ohio State, Florida, Duke, Syracuse. You're drafting guys from winning programs with very strong coaches. That's not a coincidence, is it? No, we we have a theory that, you know, guys that go to big programs, that get the best coaches in the world, that understand that they're part of a bigger thing. I think that's one of the biggest issues is they understand that to be successful, you can't be an individual. You have to put the team first. And because of that, uh, it just works to the to that fact that we feel like big programs mean a lot of things. Big And big, what I mean, is that they're successful year in and year out. The Kansases, the Dukes, the Floridas, the Ohio States. And uh, it makes a difference, and that's what we're about. Kevin, take us inside the draft war room just for a moment, if you would. You've talked about Paul Allen. He seems like a kid in the candy store on, on draft night. When he wants to buy a pick, does he come to you and say, Kevin, I want to buy this pick? Or do you go to him and say, Mr. Allen, I think we've got a great opportunity here. I'd like to have some money to buy this pick. I think the biggest thing is identifying the guy to go get. And then once you figure out who you like, Paul Allen gives us the opportunity to go get him. And Paul is fantastic about that. And as long as we do a good job of identifying good talent, then we're we're in great shape because he's willing to go and use the resources to to be successful and grab those players. Well, and he did this last year with Sergio Rodriguez. Is it safe to say that in the last two drafts that Mr. Allen has uh, given you a few million dollars to spend on draft picks? That would be correct. Wow. And Tom Penn, he had a big part in the draft, I know. He's a salary cap expert. It really seems like more and more teams are bringing in people like Tom Penn. Can you talk about the role he played in the draft? Yeah, we made a trade, and it hadn't been announced yet, and we can't talk about it, and it probably won't be done for another seven to ten days. But it's a good trade for us. It allowed us to gain a pick and a player and also a, uh, a, a, a claimed player. Uh, who we feel very good about, and um, uh, we wouldn't have been able to do that without his expertise. One of the things I think you can talk about is the Zach Randolph trade. Zach Randolph has been in Portland for several years. One of the things that I think is really good about this trade is you've got a number of young players, LaMarcus Aldridge, Brandon Roy, now Greg Oden. You've got to pay these guys at some point, and you just cleared a bunch of cap room to be able to pay those guys down the line. Was this trade made as much for financial reasons as anything else? No, you know, uh, for us it's about having a bunch of good players, young guys willing to grow together, and ultimately having a chance to win a championship. It's not about anything else. And, you know, the last couple of years we'd have, we've had to remake the team. We've had to see what our – players are about and then we've made adjustments and when we do that sometimes it hurts sometimes you got to give up the player and that's hard but it is part of our process last question for you because i know you're on the run you've talked about culture several times in this interview i've heard you talk about it in other interviews describe for me the type of culture the ideal culture you're trying to build for the portland trailblazers 
Well, I think it starts with uh, Paul Allen, myself, and Nate, and what we're about. And we're hardworking. We, we see it very similarly. So we, we're aligned, which makes a big difference. And when you look at uh, kind of our ethos or our culture, it's about toughness. It's about unselfishness. It's about putting the team first. It's about seeing something bigger than just yourself. And it's about working harder and working smarter than other people. And you can't do that every day, but if you wake up every morning and that's what you're about, I think ultimately you get to where you want to get. Well, Kevin, a historic night for the Trailblazers franchise. Another fantastic job by you and your staff. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. Glad to be on. You take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses, Morton's the Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to mortons.com. So Kevin Durant was the number two pick in the NBA draft on Thursday. He was selected by the Seattle Supersonics. And I had a chance last week when his agent, Aaron Goodwin, was in town to catch up with him and ask him about the marketability of his client, Kevin Durant. Aaron, tell me about Kevin's marketability. He's got a real dynamic, flashy game. What kind of deals do you think you may be able to get for him because of his personality and his game? Well, I don't know if, if we can kind of specifically say what type of deals. I mean, he's he is a dynamic kid. He's a young kid. So it's a process of, of establishing his identity as he gets older in the league. He's just learning to drive a car, so it's kind of hard to get an automobile deal. And uh, he's, he's at the process where it's, we're really conscious on making sure he eats healthy, so you have to really work toward getting a food and beverage deal. So um, he, I think that in the, in the years to come, he'll be extremely marketable, and we'll put a plan together, and it'll work well for him. He's already got deals with Upper Deck, I believe, and EA Sports. I've seen the little banners on ESPN.com and, and other places. Are there any deals uh, in the immediate future for him? Obviously, guys do shoe deals. That's one of the deals they usually do before they go into the NBA. Are you working on a shoe deal? Well, we've got four or five deals in the works, and, yes, he is um, in the process of working toward a shoe and apparel deal. And we hope to have at least that deal done in the next week or so. And then as we move forward and as we see where he lands in the NBA next week, That'll help in the planning of what, how we put together the rest of this program. You know, the NBA does an amazing job of marketing stars. You know, they put them in their PSAs. They put them in their spots. What do you do as an agent to try and get Kevin in that conversation, or does his game just speak for itself and get him in that conversation automatically? No. With all my players, I, I literally take he and his family to meet with the NBA marketing people and educate them on you have your two biggest marketing partners is your shoe and apparel company and the NBA. So we try to acclimate them with the NBA early on, let the people in the NBA offices, league offices, um, see his personality early so that as he starts moving forward in the league, they already know who he is and they can move toward bringing him involved with their sponsors. Aaron, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. So also last week, Kevin Durant was in town to work out for the Portland Trailblazers. I had a chance to catch up with him and ask him about having a mid-level price shoe. I know that's something that's been important to him. Oh, yeah. When I, growing up, I couldn't afford $120 shoes, $130 shoes. So uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, wherever shoe company I go with, they'll, they'll make an affordable shoe for, for people that, that can't afford the, the higher brand of shoe. So uh, with that, it's gonna, kids are going to want to buy it. And, Hopefully they look good enough to kids to buy. 
Let me ask you about that real quick. I know LeBron and Michael Jordan, some of these guys get real into the design of their shoe and their, their sporting line. Do you care about that, or were, uh, are you kind of interested in, in being involved in the, the design of your shoe and apparel? Uh, as long as it looks decent, as long as the kids look like it, uh, and as long as it's comfortable with my feet, that's all I worry about. So, Nathan, interestingly enough, you know, at the time that I talked to Aaron Goodwin, and to Kevin Durant, I thought that they'd have a shoe deal in place before the NBA draft. Well, as of this moment, there is no shoe deal. Uh, I think Durant wants to sign with Nike, and Goodwin and Goodwin's mom want him to sign with Adidas. This poor kid, he's 18 years old, he's torn. Well, this is ridiculous. I think that Durant is thinking that Goodwin is his boss, and that's not the case. You talk about it on your blog. You know, Durant really needs to step up and get a shoe deal. They should have been running commercials during the draft tonight, and they weren't. Yeah, big missed opportunity, not only for Durant. You know, we saw him appear in some EA sports spots with Gilbert Arenas, the hibachi. I thought those were good spots. But if you get a shoe deal done in time, you can do some creative things around the draft when lots of people are watching. Uh, even if it's just handing out T-shirts or or doing some marketing like that, and I think they really missed it here. Well, whoever he signs with, I hope that he does create an affordable shoe because I think that's a fantastic concept. No, I think it is too. And, and frankly, uh, Nike presented that idea to him when they presented uh, to him, and they said, you know, there was Nike making a presentation to him, there was Adidas making a presentation to him, and Nike said, listen, we know you come from an area where you want kids to be able to afford your shoe. Let's talk about having a mid-level price shoe. I think it's a good idea, and obviously you heard Kevin Durant say that's something that's very appealing to him. Absolutely, and we saw Stefan Marbury do the exact same thing and the success he's had in, in making an affordable shoe, so... Good deal. Coming up, we've got our final segment. We're going to wrap up a busy edition of Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back with you. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for custom fit fine clothing and personal service to match, I call my friend Brian Tacker with the Tom James Company. Tom James' highly trained sales professionals like Brian Tacker come directly to your home or office, saving you valuable time. Brian plans and coordinates my wardrobe so I am perfectly attired for any situation, whether it's a TV interview, a press conference, or a fundraiser. The Tom James Company offers over 500 suit fabrics and 250 shirt fabrics, and they carry all the accessories you'll need, from belts and ties to shoes and socks. The Tom James Company has been in business for over 40 years, and 80% of their business is generated from repeat customers. Call Brian Tacker today at 503-807-7956 or find his information at sportsbusinessradio.com. Brian Tacker and the Tom James Company, the official fine clothing partner of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back with our final segment. And Nathan, you know, Mike D., who is the head of the Fenway Sports Group, has appeared on this show before. We've talked about the partnership with the Boston Red Sox and Roush Fenway Racing. Back in February, the Red Sox owners bought a 50% stake in Roush Racing. 
So one of their marquee drivers is Carl Edwards, a NASCAR driver. We wondered, it's only a matter of time, you would think, until the Boston Red Sox logo was stuck on Carl Edwards' car. Well, guess what? This weekend is that weekend, and we're finally seeing some really cool cross-promotion. Well, yeah, it brings whole new meaning to Red Sox Nation, and this really is a win-win situation for both. They're going to be doing promotional stuff at Fenway Park for NASCAR and at NASCAR events for Fenway and the Boston Red Sox, so it really is a great thing for both teams. Well, and it's two different audiences, so you're kind of introducing these northeastern Boston Red Sox fans to a very southern sport, NASCAR. Now, obviously, I don't want to regionalize NASCAR because it's become very big across the country, but let's face it, I don't think there's a lot of people in Boston that are tuning into NASCAR races. Now, they're going to pay much more attention because guys like Carl Edwards are coming to Red Sox games with the Red Sox NASCAR. Maybe they'll tune into a race on TV. And then on the flip side of that, you've got this Boston Red Sox logo that's going to be going around the track on uh, the NASCAR circuit. So I think it's a win-win, a great cross-promotion. Sure, and now there's going to be hats and gear and everything else that said Boston Red Sox and NASCAR, and they're going to be introducing the drivers at Fenway here in an upcoming game against, I think, the Astros the next couple weeks. Well, in Roush Fenway, a lot of people don't know this, but of all the NASCAR teams, they are the most valuable NASCAR team out there. Maybe they don't have the biggest drivers, but in Forbes's recent valuations, uh, Roush Fenway Racing was valued as the top NASCAR team. Boy, lots of things going on on this week's show. Lots of guests. Kevin Durant, Aaron Goodwin, Alana Kloss, and Kevin Pritchard. Thanks to all of them for taking time to join us this week. Our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, and Brian Tacker with the Tom James Company. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand anytime you want via podcast. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. Check out our newly designed website. Keep up with breaking sports business news at sportsbusinessradio.com. Again, an incredibly jam-packed show this week, but lots of fun. We will see you next weekend right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com. For our Sports Business Radio podcast listeners, we've got this bonus segment. It's my interview with Adam Blackmore from the BBC. I had a chance to catch up with him. There was a bunch of discussion this week in Europe. I actually did an interview with the BBC discussing an answer that Paul Allen gave us on our show last week when I had a chance to interview the billionaire co-founder of Microsoft. Here's my conversation, a bonus conversation on this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. I'm joined now by Adam Blackmore of the BBC. Adam, thanks so much for taking time to join me. Pleasure, Brian. So do us a favor. Give us a brief history of Southampton's football club. It seems like there's a rich history there. 
yeah, with a lot of English football clubs, Southampton included, you know, most of them have been playing in the English league since the late uh, 1800s. So there's a vast history, lots of tradition built up. And of course, that tradition is there with the fans as well. And, you know, very much, you know, each town, each city has its own teams. And it's, uh, it's particularly parochial uh, with the English Premiership and, you know, fierce rivalries between teams. And Southampton, uh, no different to any other. They have their fierce rivals, Portsmouth. Portsmouth have uh, taken up ownership, uh, being owned now by a Russian businessman. Uh, obviously, there's some money there in the background. And Southampton are struggling to compete currently, having dropped out of the top flight of the game recently. And they're, and they're suffering because of that, because of the financial disparity, not only between them and the Premier League above them, but them and their rivals, Portsmouth. And for fans of this family-run club, it's been a tough time. Yeah, talk about the fans for a minute. Uh, I was saying earlier in our show that I have never received more email, had more comments on our blog than for this story. They seem as passionate as any fans as I've ever come across. Yeah, and I think that's common a- across uh, English football clubs. You know, it is a, it is a, we all feel like we own our, our soccer clubs over here. You know, we deserve to have a say. It's a very English thing. You know, we pay our, we pay our money. We deserve to have a say. We care more than any other set of fans. Everyone thinks the same. It's a bit like the BBC, to be honest, Brian. You know, people pay their licence fee to help fund the BBC, and they always feel, and in fact, they have got a right to have their say. And I'd say it's the same with our football clubs over here. Plenty of passion and plenty of tradition, and, of course, that makes for for, for a really emotional connection between the individual fans and the clubs. Adam Blackmore with the BBC is joining me. Adam, how did these Paul Allen rumours get started, and how long ago did they start? Well, it was April the 27th was the key date for Southampton. That's when the Southampton board had to announce to the stock exchange in the UK that they had uh, had an approach from a, a party interested in taking over the clubs and they were going to hold initial talks with them. Now, from that moment and before that, uh, and really since that moment, it has always been that everyone has wanted to believe that the rumour was that Paul Allen, and, or certainly a third party associated with him, were, was the person speaking and dealing with the club. And in fact, you know, I was led off the record to believe that by people close to the club. So that makes it really uh, interesting from our point of view. So it was almost like everyone was happy to have this rumour carry on. So to actually hear on your show, Paul Allen, say, I've never been interested in a European soccer club, is fascinating because it really has for the first time scotched any rumours that were going on. And actually, it backs up what Michael Nank told us, that he wasn't interested whereas everybody's tried to almost keep the myth going over the last couple of months. And I think fans have done that in the hope that it was Paul Allen because they've suddenly become a super club with a great financial base. You know, I've been following the Southampton Leisure stock this week since our interview, and maybe we're taking too much credit for this, but it looks like the stock has actually dropped a little bit this week since the news of uh, Paul Allen's comments on Sports Business Radio. Yeah, and it did, and it did go up when Paul Allen was associated with it. And some of the reason that everybody, you know, everyone starts trying to add two and two up and make five, Brian, it happens all the time with these things. So once everyone knows there's an interest, then they're thinking, why would this billionaire man, one of the top 20 richest men in the world, why would he want to come and buy Southampton Football Club of all the things to spend his money on in the world? And, of course, one of the suggestions was that Paul Allen's love for sailing was directly related to his interest in the club because the club owns some land, uh, which is sort of river estuary seaside here. And uh, there was a thought that he would want to turn that into a multi-million pound marina so he could birth his own 
uh, almost have a European base for his sailing interest and have a marina development in Southampton because the club owned the land. So, of course, that sort of made everyone go, well, it must be him because of this marina. And, of course, now it seems to be that it isn't. Although I've heard, Brian, and you can tell me that sometimes, you know, what you hear in public uh, from businessmen uh, like Alan's people might be that they'll always often create a smokescreen around deals like this until they actually happen. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I did an interview, as you heard, on BBC Radio this week. And, you know, as uh, the gentleman said, sometimes the lieutenants are out and they're scoping out these deals in advance. And maybe someone like Paul Allen isn't as intimately involved because he's having his lieutenant scope out the deal. But I did get the feeling uh, when I was talking to Paul Allen last week that because he wouldn't have as much time to travel to these games in Southampton, that he was less interested. I mean, the way he phrased it, it was interesting. He didn't just say, no, I'm not interested in owning a football club. He said, I'm already going to 100 games a year with my NFL team and with my NBA team. I don't know if I'd have time to go to watch Southampton. So it's all about a time thing for him, not so much a money thing. Yeah, and if you're going to invest in it with passion, how could you be passionate thousands of miles away? You would have to make the effort to come over here. And, and Paul Allen, you know, he, he's a multi-millionaire, he's a billionaire, but he's still human. And he'd be living with permanent jet lag if he tried to watch Southampton yeah. as well as his other interests. There's no doubt about it. So, Adam, tell me a little bit about the current ownership of uh, Southampton, if you would. Yeah, the, the current ownership is, is, a, is a, a board, as a holdings PLC company that... Uh, the parent company of the football club board. The football club board is run by a mix of executive and non-executive directors. And this mix took over the club almost a year ago this week from the previous administration, which had become unpopular. And the current administration really got in almost on an anything but the previous uh, administration ticket. And the fans wanted change. They'd been relegated, as I said, out of the Premier League. And, of course, they almost, they sort of promised investment in the club as part of their manifesto to get themselves into the club. Now, the original chairman who led that takeover uh, has since you know, parted company with the board and has almost been uh, removed because he failed to bring in investment into Southampton Football Club. Now, over here, of course, when you drop out of the premiership, you lose an enormous uh, amount of money and kudos and everything else that goes with being in the top echelons of, of the division over here. I mean, the, the money that uh, broadcasters and everything pay to the Premiership make it, they reckon, the per uh, revenue per team, the second richest league behind the NFL. So we're talking about massive amounts of money, roughly about $180 million of revenue uh, per team on this new deal over the three years. And that's why it's so important once you drop out of the league for teams like Southampton to somehow find somebody who can help make up that deficit because the club has to scale down its ambitions with its players, with the standards of players, with the size of its squad. And, of course, you can get into an ever-decreasing circle of, uh, of, of problems where things just get worse and worse because the more debt you raise to try and get back into the top flight, of course, the more risks you take and so on and so on. So it's really dangerous when a club like Southampton finally drops out of the top league here because then they're competing with lots of other clubs and lots of ambitious clubs to get back in. And there's only ever three places each year. And so there's real pressure because they have parachute payments, Brian, that they, they help support them when they drop out of the, the Premier League. But they lose. They disappear after two years. And when they disappear, the clubs are left to stand on their own two feet. And, of course, if they've given players long contracts on premiership wages, then they're suddenly having to try and fill the gap with lowering attendances. And you can see how it's a real vicious circle. 
Adam, we've got just a few minutes left. For myself and for our listeners who have never attended a Southampton football game, uh, paint a picture for us. Where does the stadium sit? What's the atmosphere when you go to a Southampton football game? Well, traditionally, uh, the club, as I said, is a very much a community-based club. Lots of families would watch Southampton Football Club. And over here, we've always had a tradition, of course, of, of terracing and banks of supporters from clubs singing all the way through games and doing that. And that still happens. But, of course, since the late 80s and some football disasters we had on the terraces, fans dying at events at Hillsborough and Heisel uh, in the 80s, since then, all the stadiums have had to be upgraded. Southampton has a stadium which is less than 10 years old, the St. Mary's Stadium. It replaced a much smaller stadium. And there was a good business plan in place. They put this excellent stadium together. It seats you know, 34 thousand people all round, all with good views. It's a decent facility. They have excellent training facilities as well at a different base. So it's, it's I would say it's a well-structured, well-organized uh, club. And you probably, unfortunately, you know, now they're out of the premiership, you probably get an average crowd of about twenty to 25,000. When they were in it, it would be sold out every home match, 34,000. So there's the problem financially with trying to fill and plug that gap and keep the interest going from fair-weather fans who only want to come every week to see the top players. Adam, last question. Where do you think we go from here? How does this all play out for Southampton's football club, in your opinion? Well, I have been obviously speaking to people close to the club since uh, Paul Allen announced he had no interest in a football team. And I said, look, isn't it in your interest to now put out to the public and to let it be known that Paul Allen isn't interested? Is that not the best thing to do? So as you, your other potential investors come forward and think, great, Paul Allen's not there for us anymore, we can perhaps come forward and invest in this football club. And when I said that, the response I got was, well, who's necessarily saying Paul Allen isn't still, in, <laughs> isn't still wanting to have an involvement? And I said, well, Paul Allen is. So which, uh, you know, the ceremony, the, it's almost like cloak and dagger stuff. And, and you just have to smile sometimes because you know that people are just spinning your things in a certain way all the time. But I think Southampton, they need an investor. If they don't get that, Brian, I would have real concerns that this football club, which does have a great tradition, is just going to struggle more and more to get back into the top flight. And if you're not in the premiership, as they say, you're just not in it. Well, Adam, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been a huge story for us this week and obviously over there. I really hope that everything works out so that Southampton uh, has wonderful ownership, that the fans over there obviously